Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be looking at the Kingdom of God to Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew 14, uh, and of course, Matthew 14 starts right off with the death of John the Baptist. We did uh, 13 this morning, and uh, 13 was dealing with parables, lots of different parables, uh, tares in the wheat, and uh, you know, the leaven in, in the measure of flour, and Leaven in the Old Testament means cruelty. When you're supposed to get the leaven out of your bread, uh, of your free bread, of your welfare system, because they were in a welfare system in Egypt, that's how they got into the bondage of Egypt, is the Pharaoh said, well, I'll feed you, but you're going to owe a percentage of your labor from now on to me because I'm feeding you. Now, I don't know how strict he was about it, but it was basically one-fifth, 20% of what they produced went to the Pharaoh. And with that, a great deal of wealth went into the Pharaoh's hands because everybody, not just Israel, but all the people of Egypt went into the same system, which was very similar to that of the turtle dove goddess of Sumer and the rest of these, and even uh, Nimrod. And it's actually the same as what Cain was doing. But uh, that isn't a bad system in itself. But it creates great temptations because it has a tendency to weaken the people and give rise to tyrants. It has a tendency to become a covetous practice and, and therefore will degenerate the people. And they end up instituting the rule of force and violence. Now, you could have such a system where everybody pays into a central treasury and it, the money goes there and it trickles down and it's managed more from the top down than from the bottom up. It's way better off to do it from the bottom up. And there's not as many temptations. But there, where the real temptation comes when you do it from the bottom up, which which is what Moses was teaching, what Christ was teaching, is that apathy can set in. And people can stop because they become so successful that there is the danger of repose. And you could do we could do a whole program on repose. I don't think I've ever done a web page on that. But re- repose and I use that particular word. There's probably a couple other words that you can use. But repose can cause degeneration in the people. It can cause an atrophy amongst the people. And, uh, you know, it's like living in a weightless uh, state. And you can become weaker and weaker and weaker when you're subject to this repose. You don't have... You need... Some stress. If you want your muscles to get stronger, you've got to use them. You've got to pit the weight of and the strength of your muscles against something else. And then they get stronger. If you're put in a low gravity state, your legs, you will lose muscle mass in your 
your legs will become weaker unless you work at it really hard. Uh, your heart will become weaker. It, it won't become so, well, I'm not sure exactly all what would happen, but it would become weak enough that when you were put in an intense gravity situation again, what you were, what you're used to, you know, one G force now, if you were living at, what is, if you were living on Mars, what is it like, uh, six tenths of Earth's gravity on Mars? And so, if you lived on Mars for ten years, or born on Mars, in that gravity, and then you tried to come to Earth, you'd find it very difficult. Because the Earth's gravity would be so much more, you would have to readjust. And so, but that's that's what repose does. Repose takes the burden off of you, and then you become weaker. And of course, that's what happens when you create a system of legal charity. It takes the burden off of you. You don't have to make certain choices. You don't have to make sure that what you're sharing with other people is strengthening them and everything. You just just pay in your, well, it used to be 1.5% for Social Security. Just pay that in and the government worries about it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You, you don't have to join the militia and protect your community from thieves and robbers and from invasion. You know, you just pay a tax and the government does it. But it takes choice out of your hand. You become a person, a thing, a cog in this machinery. It takes, you know, it takes some of that burden off of you. But it has a tendency to come back and bite you <laughs> and become more burdensome. And so it's, and it's part of that repose thing. You don't have to decide. You don't have to get to know your neighbors. You know, uh, that was one of the things I, I kind of amazed at is when I was at earthquakes back in, when was that? Late sixties. We had some earthquakes, early seventies in California. And it did a lot of damage, cut off water and everything. Well, we kind of knew where our neighbors were, but we didn't, we didn't go play bridge at our neighbor's house. So we didn't, it wasn't that kind of a neighborhood. You can have a neighborhood and you don't need your neighbor. Your friends maybe live halfway across town or somewhere else. You know, or, you know, like I went to private school, so most of my friends were in the private school and the private school was a long ways away. So I didn't know all my neighbors. When I was a little kid and went to private school, Everybody on my block, just about, went to school at the private school. A couple of them went to public school. But almost everybody, all the kids my age, went to the same school I did. And so, uh, my, they knew my parents, and my parents knew them, and they were, and it was a school related to a church. So, we had a somewhat of a community. But even then, it wasn't like the community of the first century church. Because the first century church, if you had any sort of welfare need, uh, you lost your job, your your parents got sick, you got sick, uh, you had to go to church to get aid. There was nobody else to give you aid. I mean, there were institutions around that would do it, but you had to sign up for them and, and contribute to them. And, of course, that was the free bread of Rome. Christians didn't eat the free bread of Rome. They didn't eat at that table because that table was a snare. And they understood that. Because they had read the Bible. They had read the Septuagint even. And they knew that. 
And they had heard Christ. And they knew what he meant when he said things like, call no man father. Today, people don't know. And that's kind of the problem with these guys that I'm going to talk about in the last part of the show. Is they don't seem to quite get it. I think they could. But we'll have to have that conversation. I saw him in an interview with somebody in England. and uh, But anyway, we'll talk about that then. Uh, when, when we get to that topic. So anyway, we saw these parables. He talks about an old and old treasures. And of course there's the unrighteous mammon is entrusted wealth. And the righteous mammon is entrusted wealth. The means and method of those two systems determine whether it's righteous or unrighteous. And of course, the same with the Corbin of the Pharisees. The method and means of the Corbin of the Pharisees caused that system of sacrifice, which is what Corbin means, of gifting, which we're going to see as we go through uh, 14, 15, 16, because there's certain words that are we find the same story in in Mark, and we see the word Corbin, and it says that Corbin is like Doron in the Greek. It's, it has the word Doron, and uh, you don't see the Corbin word in Matthew, but you see the Doron word, and we know that Mark just said that Corbin is like Doron. So all you have to do is know what the word Doron means. And it means gift. But it means a certain kind of gift. Because I can give you, I can give you right off the top of my head four different Greek words that can mean gift. But it means a certain kind of gift. But we'll cover that when we get to those chapters. (laughs) So now we're going to look at 14. And like I said, it begins right away with the death of John the Baptist. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Herodias is the wife now, supposedly the wife, of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. Herod after the father. It's the second Herod. And we can tell you more about him, and we will as we go through this. But he had married his brother Philip's wife. And of course, John the Baptist didn't like that. He says, you can, you can marry... Herodias, when Philip is dead, but not while he lives. That's a violation of the Mosaic law from the point of view of John the Baptist. And he's right. And Herodias did not like that. She wanted to be able to do what she was doing. And there's a long long story as to why that is. But basically, there was this conflict. But anyway, it goes on in verse 4. For John said unto him, It is unlawful for thee to have her, Herodias. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So, Herod did not want to put 
John the Baptist to death. He didn't desire that. And when we read Mark and compare Mark, Herod actually liked John the Baptist. He didn't like what he was saying about his taking his brother's wife, but he had a, a lot he liked about John the Baptist. And I will tell you some anecdote stories that come from other writings, ancient writings of that time that are outside of the biblical text concerning Herod. Because there's reason to believe that Herod liked Jesus too and recognized Jesus as having the rightful claim to his throne. And that's actually in the biblical text. I would only give you extra biblical text to just kind of give you the surroundings. And and nobody reads the Bible without extra biblical text. Because Otherwise, you don't know who all the players are. You know, you can kind of piece it together, but you need to know the history. You need to know the history to know the language. You need to know what's going on and why there's going on in order to know all the fine details. Now, ultimately, what you need is the Holy Spirit, and then you wouldn't even need to read the Bible. (laughs) But we read the Bible because a lot of people think they have the Holy Spirit. They think they're blessed by God. They think they're following Christ. But they're not. And Christ warns us that many would think that. That they're actually followers of Christ and they're actually workers of iniquity. And I point that out regularly because people seem to forget that. Of course, that's never in reference to any of you out there. (laughs) That's only in reference to those other guys, those other denominations, etc. Herod was celebrating his birthday. So, birthdays have been around for a long time. So, he's celebrating his birthday. He says, but when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. There's all kinds of stuff written about what the people think went on and everything. But, Anyway, Herod was happy with her performance there. And you can get your mind down like there was really abominations and all that stuff. I don't think it was quite uh, as negative as a lot of people think. Uh, based on, you know, reading all the texts and the comments that Herod made and some of the things he did that we'll see in Mark, uh, there's something there's something more going on here. But uh, what he did say... Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. That's never a a, a good idea with a young girl. <laughs> so, so that's just a heads up. But anyway, he did it. That's that's what they're reporting. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, "Give me here, John Baptist." head in a charger. A charger is like a big platter. It's kind of a deep platter. I mean, it could actually maybe even hold soup. But uh, it could be several different things, just based on the original Greek that we're reading. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. Now, in other Gospels, we know that who are all these people with him? They're, they're actually his captains and his lords, all the people that work for him. And in those days, 
It was very important that the people that worked for you trusted you. That knew you were a man of your word. Because they, they depended on that a great deal. It's not so popular today. <laughs> but it was real popular back then. That was absolutely essential. If you weren't a man of your word, you would not expect the people that work for you to also keep their word. And that was very important, as we see with the Roman centurion, where he says that, you know, that his men, he knows that if he says do this, they're going to do it. Because And they also know that if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And this is a trust that is developed amongst men who have to go out and face battle, face dangers. You know, like uh, if you say, well, you climb down here and I'll climb up there and I'll throw a rope down to you. And you get down there and you're vulnerable and the other guy's not up there throwing the rope down. What happened to him? Where are you? You have to learn to trust one another. And men have to do that in order to do some of these dangerous things that men are often asked to do. And so it's the same way with these lords. You know, he says, you charge in there and then we'll flank them and come around this way. They got to know you're going to be there. And it's the same in the kingdom, which is why you're supposed to gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So if you gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, the first group of ten that you know is your congregation. And one of the things you're going to want to see is that, you know, if you're so far apart they have to call in, they're going to want to see you call in. Uh, if if you guys decide to do something together, they're going to want to see who shows up and who shows up first. We're so spread out, that's difficult to tell. But that doesn't come with reading your catechism. That comes with showing up for your neighbor, being there for your neighbor. You've got to do that so that you develop that trust. Now, developing that trust doesn't mean that they're going to say everything you want to say. If you ask them for advice, like, what should I do about this, or what should I do about that, they may tell you to do something you don't want to do. You don't have to do it. They're not going to exercise authority. You ask them for their opinion, they gave you their honest opinion. And we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Boards of directors and... and uh, these councils that get together and are in charge of hospitals or in charge of school systems. They have to be willing to speak up even if they give offense. We talked a lot about offending people this morning. That's important. Because you want somebody who tells you the truth of what he is thinking. At least you know where he is at. It may not be what you want to do. You don't have to do it. He's not exercising authority. But he should be allowed to speak his mind. And you should be allowed to speak your mind. And make choices for you and your family. But if you won't associate with him because he's honest with you, uh, that may be a problem for you. Because you may end up with guys who are not honest with you. If you only want guys who say what you want to hear, you're going to end up with guys who are going to say what you want to hear, but they may not tell you the truth. So it's very important. So in those days, they knew this. They were down where the rubber meets the road. And so he'd given this oath, stupid thing to do, but it it will play out for a purpose. It will create all kinds of guilt. And, and we already see this as we look back up because... 
He's already put John the Baptist to death when he hears about Jesus. And he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist's return because he thought that John the Baptist was a holy man. And he thinks that somehow he's come back now with these abilities to do miracles. He's a little shook up about this. But how that came about that John the Baptist died, now we're we're getting that from Matthew. And this is going to play into the psychology of Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. And also we point out here, it's not always, it seems to be this way in the other Gospels, but he specifically said she was previously instructed by her mother to give an answer. Which really caught Herod off guard. And the, the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought in on a charger and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And that's pretty much what we hear. Again, we see Matthew covering the same ground that Mark is going to cover. But he words it different. He says things a little bit different. Sometimes he doesn't add as much. Sometimes he does. And this is going to be important when we get to the word Doron. Because he's going to use that word, which Mark used, and said was the same as, that is to say, Corban. Corban, Doron, same thing. So it gives us an idea what the Corban is. Because Corban is one of those misunderstood words. uh, Or poorly understood words. Because we, we see it twice in the New Testament. Once it's not really, it's transliterated as Corbin. And the other time, it's translated as treasury. And so, but that can give us insight. But we have to also know that Corbin is the same as Doron. Is the Greek word Doron. And Mark tells us that. So we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Everybody likes to do that. So there you go. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. Because they were in this multitude, there were people who had health problems, issues, physical problems. Now, when he's doing this, and of course, now we've already heard several stories where he healed people, but he also cast out a demon, and then their ailment was also cured. He dealt with something in the inner part of their soul that was in there that was causing a blockage so that they maybe couldn't see, maybe they had palsy or whatever. But when he dealt with that evil influence, 
that was dwelling in them, that that spiritual blockage, that trauma that allowed a dark place in their own heart from which evil could operate in them, causing them a physical ailment, they were healed instantaneous. And and we'll we'll drop little hints now and then and we've already we've done whole programs on how this healing takes place. And it isn't something you can just learn. It isn't like a skill. Like you can go and study allopathic medicine and learn how to heal people. No, it, even Christ said two things are required. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the faith of the individual. And exactly how that works. And I just made that reference. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that look like in you? Do you need healing? What, what What's going on? So anyway, we'll bring these to attention, but you're not going to get the power to heal simply by intellectually eating from the tree of knowledge. You have to admit God is Lord in your heart, in your mind. You can't even do that all the way until you deal with the dark places in your heart, your mind, which are in there because of lack of forgiveness, which is why Christ points out that you have to forgive. And because of selfishness, so you have to give. And lack of giving. You're not going to pick up life more abundant if you don't give. Christ very clear that he lays down his life so that he can pick up life more abundant. Same goes for you. If you want healing, you have to let go of something. You have to sacrifice something. Not that your sacrifice is going to earn it, but if you don't sacrifice, when you sacrifice, when you forgive, when you... When you bless others, when you care about others, take the time to care about others. That helps remove that blockage that is keeping the Holy Spirit away from you. But there's another thing that blocks the Holy Spirit, is the fact that you don't want to see the darkness that's in you, the unforgiveness that's in you, the selfishness in you. You want to think you're saved. And you're not all that saved. Now, God wants you saved. Christ came that everybody might be saved. But saying, Lord, Lord, is not enough. You know, and and we'll get into that when we deal with the the guys I was talking about. So, anyway, we see that, you know, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been killed, he left town. And he took his apostles with him. Because, you you know, there could be lots of reasons why he did that, but he was led to do it. But the reality is is that the Pharisees are looking for a way to destroy Jesus. And they weren't real fond of John the Baptist either. And it doesn't say it here in this text, but it's very possible that if he didn't get out of town, Pharisees might try something. Now, he didn't leave town because he was afraid. But because maybe he knew that we need to, you know, maybe he was protecting the apostles. Maybe he was removing temptation from the Pharisees that might try to do something rotten. But we know that even when Jesus talks about going back to Jerusalem, the apostles are worried because they know there's these murderous guys. They've been around for a long time. Zacharias. You know, the, uh, the you know, all these children that were killed supposedly to keep the king from being born. That story is not unique 
to the story of Bethlehem. In ancient texts, they talk about Abraham when he was a baby. There was a, a similar bugarump where they went out and tried to kill because they got the prophecy that somebody who was going to lead the people back to the ways of God was being born and they wanted to kill him. And so, accordingly, Abraham was taken by his mother to a cave and hid out. Well, John the Baptist, according to the other Gospels that I've talked about earlier, were, were was taken by his mother Elizabeth to a cave when Zechariah was killed. And then evidently went to Parthia. And then came back with the knowledge of the priesthood that was in Parthia. And, you know, one of the things I came across some uh, ancient literature talking about uh, Pythagoras. I've always known that Pythagoras was attributed uh, as one of the earlier spokesmen that Essenes had looked to. That his teachings were part of the way in which the Essenes looked at stuff. But I also came across documents that points out that Pythagoras was reading Moses, Genesis, Exodus. uh, That he was using this as a guide. And I think he probably had a better understanding of Moses than many of the modern churches today. And uh, not only Pythagoras, but Plato, Aristotle, they knew who Moses was. It's very clear by ancient texts that the Etruscans were aware of Moses and the early Romans were aware of Moses and his teachings. Alexander the Great revered Israel and actually knelt down at the presence of the Levites when he went through that area because there was something special about Israel. Now, I mean, there's a Israel in the news all the time. But what was special about Israel to people like Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle and to these people that we would normally consider to be pagans, but knew of Moses, was the fact that he had a system of social welfare that was entirely operating by faith, hope, and charity, free will offerings. And Moses was teaching the people pure religion. That they they had the statutes of Moses, which were the judgments of Moses, which was the precedent kick-starting the judicial system of Israel, which was dependent upon the people in congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Basically, what they were creating were common law juries, deciding fact and law, based on the leading of the spirit that was in them. And the reason that spirit was within them and guiding them is because they were living by faith, hope, and charity. If they stopped living by faith, hope, and charity, they would stop living according to the way of God and they would begin to generate and turn away from God. And of course, that's why when once they started doing that, then when they had this problem with corruption creeping into their system, their network, where judges were turning a blind eye to criminal activity, where priests were confiscating funds for their own benefit and wealth, instead of removing them, according to the way that we've explained in previous shows, they said, well, let's let's elect a king. And he'll, he'll sort all this out. We won't have to mess with it. 
He'll sort all this. You know, I mean, that Saul guy, he's a pretty good guy. He's always defending the weak and saving us and, you know, already. So let's just make him king. Except we, we very clearly, if you look at the story of, of Saul, he was corrupted by the power that they gave him. He was afraid he was going to lose it. He was willing to try to kill David. You know? And, and of course, he started forcing a sacrifice. Because he became corrupt. Corrupted by the power that the people gave him because they didn't want to stay grassroots like Moses had taught them. And, of course, this is what's happened all over the world. In every country. The people have grown weaker and weaker and weaker. And now Jesus was coming back and John the Baptist was coming back and he says, no, don't go to the government for your welfare. Don't go to Herod and the Corbin of the Pharisees. If if your neighbor doesn't have a coat and you got two, share. If your neighbor doesn't have enough food and you have extra, share. Well, of course, they were already organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So they knew how to do that. I mean, they could get better and better at it, but they knew how to do it. But that's what they were doing. And, and the people today, they think that they're saved because they say they believe in Jesus, but they're not doing what John the Baptist said. They're not doing what Moses said. They say they're Jews. But they're not really Jews. According to Moses, according to Jesus, I mean, if, you know, there's a lot of people out there claiming to be Jews, and some of them, I'm sure, are operating in faith, hope, and charity. But a lot of them are absolutely 100% dependent upon legal charity where men like the governments of the Gentiles are exercising authority one over the other. And when that happens, you're because your leaders think that's okay and then the people think that's okay, what you got is the blind leading the blind. Where neither the leaders are faithful to Moses or God nor are the people faithful to Moses or God. So, I mean, you can still call them Jews, but they're Jews like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're not Jews like what Moses was raising up. And, of course, people have gone back to that over time and time again. And, uh, you know, and I think they should have every right to make that choice. But I have every right to tell them that if you make that choice, the day of wrath is coming. And you're going to suffer for that choice. It's built in. I don't want you to suffer. I want you to be saved. I want all the Jews in Israel to be saved. I want all the Christians in Israel to be saved. I even want all the people in Palestine to be saved. But you know, one of the biggest problems with Palestine, they're just as blind as anybody. One of the biggest problems in Palestine is that is a total welfare state. Far more a welfare state than even the nation over there called Israel. But then most people in America won't see that because they're a welfare state too. But more so in the Gaza Strip. More so. Because, I mean, you know, the more they're persecuted, the more funds they get from all over the world. You know, and if they had just buckled down, forgave Israel for whatever injustices it did, and you know, and and followed the way of righteousness, they could have made that Gaza Strip extremely well off. 
just like you see in several other places, you know, around the world, these small little places that there's a city and they become a trading center. I mean, they had the coast there. They could have developed harbors and everything there. Actually, they're they're right in line to put in a second Suez Canal. There's actually plans to put in a second Suez Canal that comes right through Gaza. And they would be at the headwaters of it. And, uh, you know, but they're they're not reliable because they've been turned into a welfare state. And so they're making a mess out of everything. So this is, of course, what was happening in Judea at that time. Because the Corban of the Pharisees is a welfare state. And, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all a part of that system. And it was making the word of God did not affect. And Jesus came along and John the Baptist came along and said, no, no, let's do this the way we were supposed to do it all along. And that's what I'm coming along saying. So, and when it was evening, his disciples uh, came to him saying, this is a desert place. And the time is now past and send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. And there's a different word there, blessed, which is probably the word that means consecrated. And broke them and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. It didn't say the disciples ate first or that Jesus ate first. They took all the food they had and they gave it to the people. Now, what has Jesus been talking about all this time? What has John the Baptist been talking about all this time? Charity. And now everybody's going to eat of these, you know, five loaves and two fishes. Now, they make us believe, they tell us, that this just appeared out of thin air. There is no explanation. I mean, like, okay, you got 12 apostles at least. There might be as many as 70 guys there or more. And they're taking these few loaves of bread. And they're probably pretty big loaves, but they're breaking them up and they're going around and distributing them. And there's a lot of people there. And everybody gets enough to eat and there's actually all kinds left over. Where did all this extra food come from? Well, they would have you to believe that it just, you know, like, you know, like you see in the movies that they reach into the basket and they say, oh, this is all there is. And then people are saying, no, there's more in here. Well, if you only have five loaves and two fishes, you don't even need a basket. If you had 12 apostles or 50 guys to distribute it to all these people, you don't need a basket. So are they, are they saying like, you know, they explained to us about manna, 
would just be appearing on the ground and on branches and stuff every morning. But now chunks of bread are disappearing in people's hands and they're handing it out and fish are bare. They don't even make mention of that. They just said they took all that they had even though they were also hungry and Jesus was hungry, been talking all day. And they gave it away. After he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. Then he took these few little... So they're all seeing. Now they've all got together and they all sat down. Now one of the things I want to point out here. Now, I mean, you can draw your own conclusion. And of course, most people are going to believe that the food just appeared out of thin air. And that's very possible. God could do that. He could just make the food appear out of thin air. Kind of like FEMA. <laughs> no, we know where the... FEMA, when it's distributing food and water and stuff, it didn't appear out of thin air. They taxed your neighbor and they forced your neighbor to contribute or they borrowed money against the future of your children and they filled up a bunch of semi-trucks and then they brought that to the site where it needed to be used. It didn't appear out of thin air. A lot of people think, you know, like I get my welfare check, I get my social security check, like it's just coming from the government. So it's like out of thin air. No, it comes from taking away from somebody else. But Jesus didn't send his apostles out to go and take food away from anybody who might have extra. And some people must have brought food. You know, there were guys, I mean, people would get around in those days. There wasn't a 7-Eleven at every corner. So if somebody says, I'm going to follow that Jesus. He's taking his boat and he's going way over there out to the desert place. I'm going to follow him. Okay, well, here, take a bunch of bread along with you. I don't know how long you're going to be. That's a long walk. And so they went. Now they're out there. And some people maybe brought two loaves. Some maybe brought ten loaves. Some may have come with a a wagon. Or maybe they told their servants that, you know, like I'm going out there, bring some food behind me, and I'm following where Jesus goes. And so they go out there and they say, well, did you guys see where Jesus went? He went down that way. You can see all the tracks. And so, okay, well, i got to bring food to my master. So that's got to be going on. There's got to be people bringing some food. And there's got to be people who didn't bring enough food. You know? And so they're all out there. But the apostles are actually a little short on food. doesn't sound like they got enough. But when Jesus took everything they had, broke it and gave it away, suddenly there was enough for everybody. As a matter of fact, because they were so organized, there was enough that everybody got some. And then when they went around to collect anything that was left over, now they're filling baskets. And now who's going to eat that? Well, the apostles are going to get their fill. They saw to it that the people got their fill first. Now, where all that food came from, you can figure it any way you want. But Jesus gave up everything and then there was extra. And then the extra went to the apostles. And if you study anything about the feast, it tells you right there in the in Moses setting up the feast that when the feast is over, 
You are not to leave the Levites empty-handed. That's where they get their surplus. From what you brought to the feast and you didn't use, just like in the days of leaving Egypt, that you had to invite everybody in to eat this lamb and there could not be anything left over at the end of the day. Now, you made you made a bunch of unleavened bread, but that was for the next day to take with you on the journey. But you had to use up all of the lamb. So, you know, I just think it's amazing that they don't say anything about that. That suddenly, when they were handing out the food, that food was cut. Every time they reached in the basket, it was full again. They don't say that. They don't talk anything about that. I thought that, you know, that that would be a memorable moment. I would be saying that. <laughs> I would tell you about it. Like, I looked in that basket a minute ago. It was empty. Now I look at it, it's full of bread. How did that happen? They don't say anything about that. It's just that there was enough for everybody. Now they're all organized. They all sat down. They all spent some time to agree to all sit down in these little groups. And we will see from Mark that they, these groups were ten hundreds and thousands. And one of the things that is different in Matthew, he says that Jesus commanded them to sit down in this tens, hundreds, and thousands. Coolio is the word that they have there. Epitasso is what Mark uses, but Matthew does not use it in this case. Also, Matthew is saying that he commanded it to the people. Now, there is another case where people are sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But uh, that that's another situation, and we'll look at that uh, when we get to it. But, uh, yeah, I do have the comparisons here on the side panel. Showing you the difference between Mark's account. See, like, for instance, uh, it says in in verse 9, where he is, the king was sorry, nevertheless, for his oaths. And it just says sorry. And, and, they, and Matthew uses the word lupio. Sorry. But when Mark is talking about this, he says paralipos, which is, which means exceedingly sorry. Lipos meaning the lupio that we see. But it's exceedingly sorry. He is, he evidently, and Mark, he's saying that Herod Antipas is very sorry that he is stuck doing this. He didn't want to do it. I'll give you another example of the same kind of thing. Pontius Pilate thought that he says, look, I will let one guy go and, you know, because this is your one of your feast days and this is a policy that Augustus Caesar had set up where, you know, somebody that was being charged with a crime and was maybe somewhat popular, that he would let him go. He would give him a reprieve. You know, like, I, w- I would think that would be a great... Great thing if they, you know, if, if we got a different re- president in and they went in there and uh, gave a pardon to all those people who are arrested <laughs> at uh, the insurrection. That would be a great thing. And so it'd make a lot of people happy. Of course, it'd make a lot of people mad. Uh, but if I was president, you know, Chauvin wouldn't be in jail right now. I'd already given him a pardon. And uh, called out the National Guard if people tried to riot. (laughs) 
I'm not running for president because there's no solution there. The solution is in the kingdom. But uh, but the Pilate was upset that they wanted to let Barabbas go. Barabbas was a murderer, sworn to murder. Barabbas meant, you know, uh, son of the father, Bar-Abbas, Bar-Abba, son of the father. And his name was actually Jesus too. And he was claiming to be the Messiah, but he was going to bring in violence. And he was just going to kill all the Pharisees that were bringing in all this corruption, making the word of God did not affect. Jesus wasn't going to do that. So Pontius Pilate thought for sure they're going to want Jesus to go free because he's this man of peace. And they don't want Barabbas to go free because he wants to kill them all. But they voted to let Barabbas go free and to kill Jesus. And Pontius Pilate was sorry about that. He didn't want that to happen. So, but you know, you you almost, well, you have to know the history again and it helps to know the history and it helps also to know a little bit about Greek and Hebrew and about the laws at the time and the customs of the time. And of course, I've gone and done all that studying up at four this morning getting ready so that I could listen to that video so that I could give people the answer on that video we'll talk about at the end here but uh, anyway the uh, the fact is is that uh, Pontius Pilate was terribly disappointed and I think Herod was terribly disappointed as well that he was caught because he gave his word and Pontius Pilate gave his word that you know, one of these men would go free and you have the right to judge the other one. And they said, crucify Christ. It wasn't Rome that wanted to crucify Christ. Caesar, uh, you know, I mean, Pontius Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. And the only way he could get back at the Pharisees was to write that official document that said, Jesus Christ is king. And he wouldn't retract it. Because he thought Jesus was the rightful king. There are stories, ancient stories, not in the biblical text, that talk about after the resurrection of Christ, that Pontius Pilate took a a bunch of guards and he walked through the city streets trying to find Christ. Because he wanted to talk to him. Wanted to see, is it really him? Has he really risen from the dead? And he did find him had a conversation with in in the same ancient documents it says that Pontius Pilate knew Jesus from years before he had already met Jesus he was from Gaul you have to remember we've talked about Gaul what happened to the Gauls Pontius Pilate was from Gaul and he was married to the granddaughter favorite granddaughter of Tiberius Caesar who believed that Christ was a holy man. So there's a lot of drama going on here behind the scenes. But people are distracted by modern day catechisms and philosophies and don't get down to the real nitty gritty of what's going on. So yeah, he commanded, but it's a different word command, but I do have a link there to the words on commanded. So we'll go back. He fed the 5,000 and he had commanded them to sit down the people. See, in Mark, he doesn't command the people to sit down. He commands his disciples to make the people sit down. 
And he uses, it says commanded in the English text, just as it says commanded here in verse 19. But it's a different word for commanded, and he's talking to a different group. And so, is Matthew wrong? Well, there's more than one event where they're all supposed to sit down. You know, one place it says they're sit down on the grass, and that's what they say here. But in the other incidents, and in the Mark incident, they sit down on a certain color grass. And in the other instance, they sit down on the dirt. They're not sitting down on the grass, on the earth. So there's slight differences. And that we have to stay focused on the message, because that's what we're trying to get. And not so much the details of the story, but sometimes in looking at the details of the story, we'll get a clearer picture. Because they all sat down, the disciples, the loaves of his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. So that's how they distributed. And they did eat, and everybody got filled, and then they took up what was left over, the remnant of what was left over. And there was more that 12 basketfuls left over. So, like, if they hadn't done this, what would have happened? So, you know, and, and of course, like I say, people are going to believe what they want to believe, and I don't want to argue the point. I'm just looking at the text and what is actually being said with a certain knowledge of human nature. And they that had eaten were about... About 5,000 men besides women and children. So, now we know in this particular case, 5,000 men and their wives and children. Now, that might, there may not have been 5,000 wives and there may not have been 5,000 children. But uh, I think a lot of people came there that uh, did bring family. Now, here's a thought. These men are bringing their wives and their children out to the desert, long ways, following Jesus, and they didn't bring enough bread. <laughs> their kids are all whining and starving and hungry. No, I, I think a lot of people brought enough bread. And a lot of people brought enough food. And they just weren't sharing yet. I mean, that's just my guess. Just based on human nature and the customs of the day, is it was this one of the festivals where they go out into the countryside? I mean, we don't have any dates on this. We don't know the next instant is the same year or a year later at another feast. We don't know. But all these men took their families out there and they had no other bread with them. But it looked like some people were going to go hungry. Certainly the apostles were. But Christ took all that they had and they gave it away. And the people know this. How long does it take 5,000 men and their families to sit down, and if we believe Mark, they're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Matthew doesn't really explain that here. But we know at that time, synagogues were groups of ten men and their families. 
That that's just historically we know that's the case. So that's not unusual to do that. And these are all Jews, and they they many of them are probably all in the same congregations, but they're going out together. They didn't go out alone. They went out with their, you know, maybe four or five of their congregation. And if it was one of the festivals, almost everybody was going out there. But uh, people were being so selfish, some people were going to go hungry. And certainly the apostles and Jesus didn't have enough to feed them. And suddenly they did. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. To get people to share like that. I, I, uh, I'm going to share with the ministers. I haven't got around to doing it yet. Uh, hopefully I'll, I'll get it sent to them. We have had these discussions. That ho- rural hospitals all over the country, maybe 30% of them, are closing their doors. Many of them already closed their doors. They're bankrupt. COVID destroyed them. Now, there was a lot of them having trouble to begin with before COVID, but now they've destroyed them. The hospital here in this county is in dire trouble. And they've already emptied out their convalescent care and their assisted living care. And the buildings are just sitting empty. And they can heat them with geothermal. They're all equipped. They have all the beds. They have all the equipment in them. They're just sitting empty. I could I could mustered enough guys to start taking care of people there. But I don't have the money to do it. God would have to bless me. Where's those loaves and fishes when you need them? <laughs> Where are the people willing to share? Share till it hurts. Because now everybody doesn't have as much bread because they've taken up all the surplus. There was a lot of surplus. That was amazing. But it was giving that people were learning. I tell you, that's the miracle. Especially after years and years of the Corbin of the Pharisees, which had been around a long time by then. I mean, Herod was in power for at least 25 years. I can't remember exactly how many. And he's been dead for 25 years. So that's been 50 years since the Corbin of the Pharisees was instituted. But thus it's been uh, 60, 70, 80, almost 80 years. Going on 90 years since they instituted the Corbin of FDR. Wow. We're really out of practice. (laughs) So anyway. But anyway, those are the possibilities. So Jesus walks on the water. Verse 22. And straight away, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The multitudes, plural. All these different groups. He sent them away. They all went back home. And the apostles got in a ship. But, and when he had sent the multitudes away... He went up to a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, 
It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. What? What are they seeing? This out there in the water, fourth fourth watch of the night storm. That's dark. I've been at sea in a very small boat when the winds were thrashing about. That can get scary. <laughs> Depending on the boat. And that boat, that could get scary. But if I saw somebody walking on the water, of course now I know a little bit about Jesus. I might not be quite so afraid. But uh, it was scaring them. So in verse 27 it says, But straight away Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. A little gutsy that Peter. And he said, now we're calling him Peter there, but he, he they didn't call him Peter at that time. They were still calling him Simon. And he said, Come. Jesus said, Come to Peter. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, Jesus is probably not real far away. Because they can see him. And maybe he's going. That doesn't really say that. But uh, they can hear him over the wind. So, he's not like, you know... 500 yards out. He's right there. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, referring to Peter. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they were in the ship, came and worshipped him. They served Jesus, saying, Oh, uh, uh, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now are they, what did they mean, the Son of God? Who else is called the Son of God at this time? Tiberius is called the Son of God. Before him, Augustus Caesar was called the Son of God. Because they were the head of the welfare system of Rome. They were the overseer of the welfare system of Rome. Which is like Saul. You know, he was the overseer of the system of welfare, which is what was used to bind the people of Israel together, their system of altars bound the hearts and minds of the people together so that they would stay together and defend one another. They just wouldn't defend one another sufficiently for internal corruption. They let the internal corruption go because, ah, they're too busy. And of course, this is going to be one of the big problems. Jesus trying to get people who think they're too busy to set aside time to attend to what? The weightier matters. What what are the weightier matters? So, anyway, we've got this uh, this idea of the Son of God because they expected Saul to actually defend them against the Philistines and that, but also to deal with... it wasn't He wasn't elected just to fight their battles out there against the Philistines. 
But it was because there was corruption amongst the priests. And therefore, if it was amongst the priests, it was also corruption amongst their appeals corps. And that they could, that there was a way to remove them from the grassroots up, but everybody has to work together, which of course creates better bonds in your society. Ah, but they were too busy to do that. They just want, Saul, you do it for us. And of course that was opening the door. Yeah, and it was, and, and the reason they were even thinking that way is they were already rejecting the ways of God. What are the ways of God taking care of everything? You know, internal corruption, external corruption through faith, hope, and charity. Because your charitable system of ministers of charity, where each hierarchy of minister wasn't about archy, it wasn't about exercising authority, it was about exercising service and making sure that the weightier matters are attended to through this charitable system. Can you imagine? Those of you who are maybe new listeners and don't know how those charitable systems work, you can look up the cities of refuge. Uh, you can look up the tens, hundreds of thousands, tens, and, and find out how Israel was working. And this is what Christ was setting up again, which we see in Mark. Mark 6 and 7, when they're, they're dealing with some of these same issues. So, in... Let's go through verse 34. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Genesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased. And besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touch were made perfectly whole. And I told you a little bit about that this morning. How that became a problem with other men that had this same power. What's going on? You know, when Jesus was touched by the lady who had this bleeding issue for years and years. It says he felt the virtue go out of him. There's an actual energy that comes out of Christ and heals the other people. But Christ tells us that that only works, generally speaking, when the people are receptive, when they have the faith to receive that energy. So you have to have this kind of like positive negative. (laughs) You have to have the contact. You know, your contacts have to be clean so that that energy can come from Christ into you. And you don't, have to actually touch his garment or touch him. But you have to have faith. And then again, some of that faith, some, often our faith, because what was the first guy that was got his son healed by Jesus? And Jesus asked him, do you believe? And the guy answered, yes, Lord, I believe, but I need help with my unbelief. So you can have a certain amount of unbelief at the same time you have belief. You can love the light, but you don't yet love all the light. Because that's the part that has the unbelief. Which is, of course, absolutely makes sense because Christ said to repent, think differently, and seek the kingdom. 
Persevere in that seeking of the kingdom. Strive in the seeking of that kingdom. Because it's a process. Where you you receive a little light, you accept it, you act upon that light, and then you you pray that you receive more light, more understanding. And you're perfected in the journey. This is absolutely essential. So, they they wanted to be made whole. But they were looking to make their bodies whole. But they needed more than just their bodies becoming whole. They needed their souls accepting the light and becoming whole. So, anyway, we got through that chapter. I can go through the side panel. There's actually quite a bit of side panel there. Back to this idea of Herod, which is this Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. And uh, Herod the Great had a number of wives. Malthus was one of them. And when they became tetrarchs, of, he became the tetrarch of Galilee and uh, Perea, which is not a very big area. But anyway, the, uh, he had a brother, Philip, who is also tetrarch, has to do with three. His brother Philip was in charge of another area. And there was another brother. But Herod had had him executed before Herod died. And nobody else was appointed to that other area. Well, what area was that? Well, it was the area containing Jerusalem. So, the kingdom was already divided in three parts because Herod had divided it in three parts. One of them was held by Herod Antipas, this Herod the Tetrarch. And the other one was held by Philip. And uh, anyway, so uh, he had married this uh, Aretas, who uh, was the daughter of the king of Arabia, whom he divorced in order to marry Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, who was still alive. And Eritas, to revenge the affront which Herod had offered his daughter, declared war against him and vanquished him after an obstinate engagement. This defeat, Josephus assures us, the Jews considered as a punishment for the death of John the Baptist, having gone to Rome to solicit the title of king. He was accused of Agrippa of carrying on a correspondence with Artabanus, king of Parthia, against the Romans, and therefore was also banished by the emperor Caius to Lyons, which is, you know, uh, eventually he ended up in Spain. So he was banished altogether from Judea, couldn't go anywhere near Judea. And uh, he and Herodias died in exile. They also, uh, Herodias had a daughter by Philip. But there was another daughter, supposedly. And this is in this extra documents. And uh, she was just the apple of of uh, his eye. You know, of, of Herod Antipas' eye. She, she could do no wrong. And she was like four or five years old. I think some she was walking, and uh, there was a winter. There was that real hard freeze, which is very rare for that area. And there was a little pond out there, a pretty shallow pond, and it formed ice over it. 
And, and a person couldn't walk on it. It wasn't that thick of ice. But the baby walked out on the ice. And it fell through. And the servants ran out to save the baby. And when they did this, they, they stepped on the ice and they started moving the ice and started breaking through the ice, of course, immediately. But the ice shifted and slid across the ice that was already there. And supposedly, the ice was so sharp, it severed the head. I don't know if it was a complete severing, but it it theoretically beheaded her, and she died. And supposedly, Herod was mourning for years and years for this, and he blamed himself because he thought that the death of his daughter was due to the fact that he had had John the Baptist beheaded. But there's some other short. Now, this is an anecdote. I can't say that it's true. I can say that it was written in very ancient documents. And there is a certain possibility that it's true. But I, I pointed out that some people thought that the fact that he was exiled was because of the fact that he had beheaded John the Baptist. But the fact that he was exiled was because he didn't have the right to be king. He, when he was going back to try to become the king, and probably did deal with Parthia, because like I said, Jesus was the legitimate king of Parthia. I'll give you another uh, uh, Malthase. Uh, and, and you could say it a number of different ways, depending on the spelling. We're looking at the English spelling here. That's why when we look at Herodias, in the English spelling, it's pronounced Herodias, but it isn't always pronounced that way. I started out pronouncing it the way you would see it written in other languages, but uh, that's my dyslexia. But anyway, there there was a, another story about Malthus. She knew that the king of Jerusalem, the Messiah that they were hoping for, king and high priest, and by king and high priest they meant son of God. Because at that time, the the term "son of God" in the Greek, and in, you know, in reference to Rome, was the high priest. He was the overseer of all the priests. He was the one who could fire the porters of the temple in Rome, and the same would be true in Jerusalem. And so they're thinking that you know they're putting it together that this is who a lot of people are starting to suspect. Uh, but even even John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was this king and high priest. And he had to send his men there to say, you know, is are you the one? But they're starting to figure it out. So, and, and there's still this issue with Parthia, that they're thinking that, that Herod is out there negotiating with Parthians, or Parthia, uh, which would be the empire of Parthia. It wasn't really an empire at that time. It was kind of a loose empire. It would later become pretty much the Parthian empire. And, of course, by that time, you would have Trajan coming up, and Trajan would defeat the armies of the Parthian empire. Didn't defeat all the Parthia people, but he defeated the emperor's armies. And see, that was a mistake. You see, but they were, in Parthia, they were dealing with the same issues that Jesus was bringing and John the Baptist was bringing. If you're trying to create an empire and everybody's going under the authority of the emperor 
and you, you're, you're letting him be the son of God, the head of your social welfare system, etc., etc., then you will actually become more vulnerable because your army will all be mercenaries. They won't fight as hard. You won't have the camaraderie amongst all the people. You won't have the sharing that is necessary when you're attacked by a foreign army. You know, like uh, the United States is going to suffer. It's going to be attacked by a foreign army. Of course, it's already being attacked internally. And, and it's, for years and years, it's been degenerating. The American people have been degenerating. They have no real recollection of how important the bonds, the social bonds of society were in order to succeed in, in, in the battles that they succeeded in. And that's why I tell you about the battles you know, that many of the battles, early American revolutionary battles, nobody died in. And nobody died from gunfire. They didn't kill any of the enemy. No, I mean, there were some that a lot of people died in. But it wasn't, it, it was really a strange war. Mostly it was about standing your ground and holding a position as if you cared about others. And they suffered at Valley Forge because they couldn't get the food and their accommodations were so poor and some of the ideas for accommodations were really poor. Knowing what I know now, I would have had them building different accommodations. <laughs> but, you know, they only had a limited amount of time and limited amount of food and people were out. My great-great-great-great-grandfather was one of the procurement officers for the Virginia Regiment during Valley Forge. He was out there trying to get food supplies into the people, which was not easy because they had no way of forcing those food supplies. They had to be freely given. There was no way to go out and tax everybody. There was no way to go out and borrow money from the Federal Reserve. The people had to protect. And there was only about a third of the people in America that really were supportive of the American Revolution. There was a lot of people who didn't support it. But eventually, men began, the more the atrocities came, the more people came together. The more people sacrificed and invested in this American Revolution, the more people would also invest in the American Revolution. Well, Christ is bringing a revolution. And he's trying to get the people not to sit on welfare while I send you bread from heaven. He wants you to invest in one another. And he's going to talk about this when he talks about the treasuries. Because there's two different words that are translated treasury in the New Testament. And he's talking about one, you don't want to have that kind because thieves and robbers can break in, moths will eat it up. But there's another treasure in the kingdom of God. And so how do you invest in that kingdom of God? And, and it still requires an investment. It requires a sacrifice. But it's very clear that Christ isn't going to force taxation on people to fill the treasury of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God isn't the kind of treasury where you've got all your gold in one place like you did with the golden calf. Or with Fort Knox. That isn't the way... Christ did it in the way Moses did it. It's the way you guys have been doing it. So you have no more just weights and measures. And so I haven't 
Did you catch what the weightier matters are? Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Did you catch that? Well, a lot of people didn't catch that. But anyway, until we meet again, peace on your house, and may God be with you. Thank you all for coming. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.